Gracious God and Father, clarify our vision, we pray, this evening through the teaching of your word and by the washing of your Holy Spirit. As our hearts seek to be in tune with you, we pray that we may both receive in our minds and rejoice in our hearts in the riches of your grace to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Show us more and more of what he has done for us. Show us more of what he has already done in us. And fill us, we pray, more and more with deep and definite aspirations to live more fully and more sensitively to his praise and to his glory. And most of all, we pray that by your presence you would shut us in here this evening with yourself, and that as children listening to their father, we may hear you speak to us, be conscious that the voice we hear deeply and inwardly is not the voice of man, but the voice of God. And so we come and pray with your servant of old, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And this we pray together for our own blessing, for each other's encouragement, but most of all, for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ in our church, in our city, and in our world. Hear us and be with us, we pray, for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we are turning once again this evening to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I suspect this evening, indeed intend this evening, that it should be the last time in our present series of studies in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul began this letter by showing us why it is that we need the gospel, because we are by nature lacking in that righteousness which God requires. The marvel of the gospel is that that which we lack, God provides for us in Jesus Christ. He spent chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, showing us how it is and why it is that we lack the righteousness of God, showing to us that our mouths are shut before the judgment seat of God because there is none of us who is righteous, and we are each one of us guilty before Him. But the marvel of the gospel is that what we lack in ourselves, God has provided for us in Jesus Christ, so much so that by the end of verse 11 of chapter 5, he has said that those whose mouths were closed because there was no room for boasting or exultation, boast or exult, he says, chapter 5, verse 11, in the grace of God in Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And we said a number of months ago now that Paul could immediately have gone on from chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 8 and verse 1, and simply, as it were, sailed into the spiritual stratosphere of rejoicing in the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what he wants to do from chapter 5, verse 12, 
until he comes to that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is to take us down more deeply into the foundations of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is this that we are considering together in Romans chapter 6 as we continue this evening in verse 15. What then? He's referring to his statement in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? And now you see the force of the question, if we are not under law but under grace, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching or the form of doctrine to which you were committed or delivered, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Years ago, many years ago, I learned two little ditties which for some reason stuck in my mind that well express the two problems that the Apostle Paul seems to be dealing with in Romans chapter 6. You will see that chapter 6 verse 1 begins in a similar way to chapter 6 verse 15. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And in chapter 6, verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. The two little ditties were as follows. You will memorize them immediately. The first was this. Buried with Christ and raised with Him too, what is there left for me to do? simply to cease from struggling and strife, simply to walk in newness of life. Glory be 
to God. Now that's part of the problem the Apostle Paul is actually dealing with here. You notice that one of the things he emphasizes in the first half of Romans chapter 6 is that by God's grace, we have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have died to the dominion of sin, and therefore, rather than simply ceasing from struggling and strife and being carried to heaven on flowery and rather sleepy beds of ease. Because we have died to sin, he says resolutely in our lives we are to refuse to let sin reign. We are to present our members, the members of our body, as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. We are to engage actively and vigorously in bringing our lives in whole-scale obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace, instead of putting us morally to sleep, wakens us morally and charges us to give everything we have to Jesus Christ. And so it would be folly to say, what is there left for me to do simply to cease from struggle and strife. No, says the Apostle Paul. Get your armor on. Use the members of your body as weapons in the great battle against sin in your life. The second little ditty was this, and it's related to what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. If we are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I'd be surprised if there is nobody apart from me who is sitting in this room this evening who hasn't been seated beside somebody going at 80 miles an hour and said to them, you're breaking the law. And they have said, ah, but I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. (laughs) Don't let them get away with that. Now, here's the ditty. Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Now, what's wrong with that? It's this, says the Apostle Paul. The person who is in Christ Jesus, who has been delivered from bondage to sin, has now been brought into a kingdom in which, as he had said in chapter 5 and verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. His whole burden in this chapter, and he says it in a whole variety of different ways with a riot of pictures and metaphors, is that when you are in Christ Jesus, your life is radically transformed. You are set free from the dominion of sin in order to enter into a glad and happy and glorious bond service of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said at the end last Sunday night, it's the story that we find in the book of Exodus. We say to Jesus, I love you, my master. I will not go free. And like that servant in Exodus 19 Jesus takes us, as it were, to the door, and He puts His all through our ear. And we have permanently 
as it were, embedded in our ears the mark that having been set free from bondage to sin, we are now in the happiest bondage in the world, in glad service to Jesus Christ, which is our perfect freedom. Some of you who are old enough to remember this remember a very extraordinary a very extraordinary controversy there was, I think, around the late 80s or early 90s in the United States. It was almost exclusively in the United States. It was known as the Lordship Controversy. And it was all about this question. Can I have Jesus as my Savior, but not have Jesus as my Lord? I remember Dr. J.I. Packer saying when he discovered that intelligent men were saying that kind of thing, he thought they were, in the English expression, stark staring bonkers. <laughs> Why? Why can't you have Jesus as your Savior but not Jesus as your Lord? For a very simple reason. There are not two Jesuses. There is only one Jesus, and he is characteristically described in the New Testament as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying this in just another way. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ who died for your sins to take away your guilt, and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master. Or to put it another way, you can never be a justified believer without being a sanctified believer. I didn't say without being a perfect believer. You can never be a justified believer unless you are a sanctified believer. That's why the New Testament actually, by and large, the language for sanctification in the New Testament is set in the past tense. Remember how Paul puts it to the Corinthians? You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. You were given over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You were put on reserve for Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a process. Yes, by God's grace, there will be advance. But it's simply inconceivable for the New Testament that you could come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior without Jesus Christ becoming your Lord at one and the same moment as he became your Savior. As Jim Elliot said so wonderfully, it takes the whole of your life to give the whole of your life to Jesus Christ. But unless when you come to Jesus Christ, you don't yield yourself to Jesus Christ, he will be neither Savior, nor Lord. You're not pardoned on the basis of your sanctification. You're not justified on the basis of your sanctification. But you get hold of one Jesus Christ, and He does two things. He justifies you by His grace, and then He transforms you by the power of His Holy Spirit. And this is actually what Paul is rejoicing in in chapter 6 and verses 17 and 18. He's heard something about the Roman Christians. He has many friends there 
as we may, by God's grace, eventually discover at the end of the letter. He has many friends in Rome, and one of the things they've told them about is what God has done in these Christians in Rome. And he rejoices and says, thank God, he says. And this is what I want us to focus our attention on again this evening. Thank God that you who once were slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the form or shape or mold of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, remember the point he's making. Later on in chapter 12, he's going to say, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. How are we not to let the world squeeze us into its mold? By, says Paul, being squeezed into the mold of the teaching to which we have been delivered. And it's this molding of our lives, this shaping of our characters, this deep inner and outer transformation that the gospel produces that I want us to look at together for these remaining minutes this evening. And to say two things. First of all, to consider the means by which this transformation takes place. And then secondly, the encouragements for this transformation to continue in our lives. What is the means by which this transformation takes place? Well, think again about Paul's words. They're very interesting, and they're very important. Notice how active the Christian believer is. Thanks be to God that you have become obedient from the heart. That's the new life, obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ from the heart. But what produces that transformation in our life? You have become obedient from the heart to the form, the shape, the mold of teaching to which you were delivered. Now, think about that word, delivered, because the important thing about it is not just that it refers to something that has happened. The important thing about it is that this is a verb in the passive voice. This is not something so much that I do as something that is done to me. This is not so much something to which I deliver myself that Paul is speaking about. Yes, I become obedient from the heart. I, I offer myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I do that, something is being done to me. I am being delivered. I am being pressed into. I am being handed over. I am being shaped and molded by this form of doctrine to which I have been delivered. And my question is, what is Paul speaking about here? What is this 
being delivered over that, that squeezes us into the gospel mold so that as the mold, as it were, is lifted or as the scaffolding around us is taken away, something glorious is produced in our lives. The answer to that question, and my dear friends, this is a tremendously important thing for us to grasp. This is, in essence, what we are doing here. The answer, in essence, is that this is something God does to you by means of the ministry of His Word, as that Word is illumined for you and applied to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is something I think is of tremendous importance for us contemporary Christians because it's something that the Christian church throughout the centuries grasped very clearly that our contemporary church for many different reasons has lost sight of. That the real transformation that takes place in our lives involves the yielding of my life and everything about me to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's something that God does on me and in me and upon me, and He does it chiefly on and in and upon me by the ministry of His Word. As I'm soaked and saturated in His Word, He squeezes me into this Christ-like mold so that my character is being forged, not by the bits and pieces that I might add to it, but what God does by His Word. And I never cease to be astonished by the books that I read and the conferences about which I hear, in which people are being urged to do it for themselves, when, as it were, God has told us in His Word, I do it through my Word, through my Word. And alas, because contemporary Christianity knows almost nothing about the history of the church, we think what we're doing, our do-it-yourself, change-your-life Christianity, we think that's normal and cutting-edge. But then when we look back upon the history of the church and we see the character that was produced in the history of the church, we feel ourselves to be one-eyed men and women looking at those who are two-eyed, and we think we are the ones who are normal. We who have substituted so many things in the place of the Word of God in our lives, and as churches have substituted so many things in place of the ministry of the Word of God for our lives, Now, let me show you this from the Scriptures, and uh, we could start a new series by doing this, but I want to look with you this evening at seven passages that underscore this for us, and therefore should lead us to pray for what happens in this room, in our worship, and in the ministry of the Word 
that this might take place among us and that we might see something that Christians today aren't seeing. That being a Christian in the community of the church, the worshiping community of the church, God does so much to shape our minds, to touch our consciences, to mold our characters when His Word presses us into its mold. Now, we'll go through this pretty quickly, so fasten your seatbelts and let's go. John chapter 17, verse 17. If we had run out of time, this verse on its own would have done everything. Jesus is praying for His disciples, and He's praying that they may be kept in the world and different from the world. And He says, Father, I'm praying you will sanctify them. I'm praying you will change them. How is He going to change them? Now, this is our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. This is His clear vision as to how it is His heavenly Father is going to transform our lives. Sanctify them, He says, in the truth. Your Word is truth. And you see what He's doing? One of them he's stating very clearly. The other he's stating by actually doing it. He's praying for the unction of God upon the Word of God to transform the people of God. Because he's convinced as the Savior, as the great preacher and teacher, that that's what changes people's lives when the ministry of the Word of God and the petitions of the people of God are joined together. Then there is transformation, not one without the other. Sometimes people say, I'm going away to pray about it when they should be going away to study the Scriptures about it. And sometimes people say, I'm going to study the Scriptures about it and have lost sight of the fact that the study of the Scriptures needs to be bathed in prayer. And we say, I don't know very much about this, this amazing transformation that takes place through the ministry of the Word. Of course you don't know so much about it, because we've hardly ever seen it. And yet you look back to the great periods of revival in the history of the church, every single one of them, There is the Word of God, and there is the petitions of God's people. Oh, God, pour out your Spirit upon your Word. And you see, lives are transformed. And Jesus knew what He was speaking about, didn't He? What's the explanation for the transformation in these disciples? These two things. Jesus had expounded the Word to them. And Jesus had prayed the Spirit down upon them. And they were transformed. They weren't sitting around saying, let's get some novel idea that we can really be cutting-edge Christians in Jerusalem. Second text, Acts chapter 6. This is one of three crises that take place in the history of the early church. And so, The early church story warns us that we shouldn't be over-alarmed when there are crises in the congregation. I'm not saying this because I know of any crisis presently in the congregation, incidentally. But you see what the apostles say. We will give ourselves to prayer 
and the ministry of the Word. And notice the order. We will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And as they give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, this church in Jerusalem, people are so transformed. I think it's not insignificant that the next thing that happens in the Acts of the Apostles is that we're given an illustration of one man so transformed by this ministry of prayer and the Word that he's willing to give his life gladly in sacrifice for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on, Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is speaking here to the Ephesian elders. And in Acts chapter 19, we have one striking illustration of Paul doing this very thing that Jesus has been speaking about. He was three years in Ephesus, and every weekday he gathered the disciples at siesta time. And uh, your footnote in the English Standard Version, if you're able to read it, will probably indicate to you on page 928, footnote 3, that he was probably or certainly possibly doing this for five hours a day. What did he do? He taught them the Word of God for five hours a day. And then as he looks to these Ephesians, whom he doesn't expect to see again, as he commits them to the Lord, he says in verse 32, and now I commend you to God, now notice what he says, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. You see what he's saying? He's saying the word does the work. Yes, we expose ourselves to the word. We bring ourselves under its ministry. We read it for ourselves. But the word of God is not a do-it-yourself instruction manual. The word of God is the do-it. And as the word penetrates our minds and as we yield to its truth, as it impinges upon our consciences and touches our affections, our lives are gloriously transformed. Paul himself is an illustration of this. Somebody says, well, let's go on in sin that grace may abound. And there is some deep-seated instinct in him that's been learned from the Word of God that without thinking says, on your bike, by no means, God forbid. Now, that's the kind of Christian believer I want to be. A Christian believer who has been so molded in his thinking by the teaching of God's Word that the instinct to obey it and to live in conformity to it comes out of the very pores of my being, as it were, without me even thinking. And that's what he's longing for these Ephesians. Here's another passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. This is the passage in which Paul speaks about Christ giving apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, the interesting thing about these five ministries is they are all ministries of the Word of God. What do they do? They build the people of God up so that they are able to exercise their ministries. You see what he's saying? This is the soil of which Duff James was speaking to the children. 
the, the word ministry of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, the word ministry was the soil in which all the other ministries that there were in the life of the church were nourished and then released so that the body of Christ could build itself up in this glorious mutual love. This is the Word at work. Hebrews chapter 4, a few pages further on. Hebrews can sometimes get lost, but if you're using the Pew Bible, this is page 1000. And three, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, that's what happens under the Word. When the Word is carried to my life, as it were, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, it, it breaks through into the impenetrable parts of my life of which I may not be conscious, and it brings that to the surface, and, and He begins to deal with it. And if you've been counting, this is number seven. Back a few pages to First Thessalonians 2.13, which underscores for us how this was so central to the apostolic mindset, being delivered over by the Holy Spirit through the Word to the shaping processes of the Word to conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says about the Thessalonians, verse 13, we also thank God constantly. Same beginning as Romans 6, 17 and 18. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Now, notice the last clause which is at work. Isn't that great? Which is at work in you believers. That's a real picture for me as a, as a preacher of the Word of God. This is, this, is, this is what's in my mind as I try and open the Scriptures. It's as though I'm letting the thing loose among us, and it's running around the congregation because it's at work. When our lives are, are yielded over to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what he's speaking about here, he died that those who live might no longer live to themselves, but to him who died for them and was raised again. That kind of radical transformation is created in our lives when the Word is at work and our thinking is being transformed, and then our feelings are being transformed, and our characters are being transformed, and our witness is being transformed, and our community is being transformed, because the Word is at work. It's at work 
It's at work. It's at work. And when it's bathed in prayer, when it's saturated in prayer, it's as though the, the wheels of the engines of God's working through His Word and the very, all the pieces of the engine have, as it were, been well oiled and, and the Word flows. And, and as we are under the ministry of the Word and as we open it ourselves during the week, it, it comes to life and it changes our thinking, begins to produce those kinds of instincts in us that, for example, a great pianist might have. After all the hours when the music had been poured in, yes, there is a role for you and I to play in this, but it's not a do-it-yourself role. It's a role in which we give ourselves over, our energies over, our, especially our passion and prayer over, O oh Lord, change me, sanctify me through your truth, your word is truth. Lord God in heaven, hear the prayer of your Son for me. And you see, when that begins to happen, we find ourselves in a strange admixture of being prostrated before him because we hear his voice and wanting to stand up and dance all the way home because he is doing the changing by his word. We desperately need that. You know, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm speaking, at, I don't know, I think for the sixth or seventh time at a conference this year on John Calvin. I'll be glad when John Calvin is 501 years old. <laughs> this is his 500th birthday. But if you want to understand why the face of Europe was changed in the days of the Reformation, here's why. Because when he was at the height of his powers in the little city of Geneva, every single day a thousand people pressed into the cathedral church of St. Peter to listen to him expound the Scriptures. I think there was hardly a story in all the years of his ministry. There, were, there was never a great introduction or a marvelous illustration, but there was the Word of God at work, at work, at work, at work, at work, at work, and hundreds of churches were planted as a result of that. Young men gave their lives in martyrdom because of that. It changed the city. It changed the church. It changed the young men. They could never be the same again when they had placed their lives under that kind of ministry. Now, he probably wouldn't have been able to find somebody to pay for him to get on a radio station in the 21st century. He was asthmatic. He was thin. There were no superstar qualities about him. You see, the Word of God was at work. Incidentally, the Apostle Paul says exactly the same about himself, doesn't he? He says, nobody would pay for me to be on television. Well, at least he says the first century equivalent of that. He didn't look very good and he didn't sound very good. 
But when the Word of God is at work, my dear brothers and sisters, it becomes so powerful among God's people that the doors of the church are not able to contain it. People begin to notice Why are these people so different? Why are their instincts so different from ours? What is there that's produced that kind of sterling character in them? And the answer is really very simple. It's that the Word of God has done its work. Now, that's the first point. The second will take me five minutes. Now that I understand the great thing. Now, before those five minutes, let me say this. <laughs> Some of you may be thinking, he's wanting to see those, those holes filled here. There are still a few holes, and he's, he's wanting more people to come. He's... He's, he's going a bender on the, on the preaching and how important the preaching is. I say this because I think, well, not just think, I know I've heard more sermons than I've preached. And I've seen this. To tell the truth, I've almost never known anything except this. The Word of God transforming the people of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the people grasping this and therefore praying that the Word of God will break loose into our lives and then break loose through our lives into the lives of others in whatever form it does by our personal witness, by things like Christianity explored, that it will break out and people will be drawn, as it were, as a magnet to this. Now we say people would never be drawn to this. How do you know? Now the second point. What encourages me to yield myself to the Lord Jesus Christ as his glad bond slave and to say, I love you, my master. I will not go free. Work on me by your word and sanctify me through its truth. Well, verse 19, encouragement number one, if you're a Christian, you no longer share the devotion that you once did. Sin was your pleasure. Now sin leaves an ugly taste in your mouth. Second, verse 20, you no longer see things the way you used to see them. You notice how he says that rather strikingly here? He says the truth of the matter is when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He means by that that you saw righteousness as a as a matter of indifference, or, or at best, a matter of choice. But you no longer see things that way. 
You see righteousness as treasure and pleasure. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and you know that everything will be added to you. Thirdly, you're encouraged because you no longer bear the fruit you once bore. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For, verse 22, you are no longer the slave person you once were. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And five, you're no longer heading for the destiny you once were. For the wages of sin is death. But isn't this contrast beautiful? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I memorized that verse, I think, when I was 14. And the interesting thing, probably like most people who memorized that verse, I thought it was a verse to use in evangelism. Did you land it that way? Here are some verses you can use in evangelism. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Jesus Christ is eternal life. But it's it's got nothing to do with evangelism, has it? Except in this sense, it's got to do with the evangelism of Christians and the encouragements Christians need to understand that once our destiny was dark and grim and disastrous and fatal, but now our destiny, and it's already begun, is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what happens when we yield to the molding processes of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the power of God, in the community of God and privately in the presence of God, we say in the words of our Lord Jesus, Dear Heavenly Father, sanctify me in the truth. Your word is truth. And you know, when that begins to happen, it just seems to go on and on. And you often find yourself in a position of saying, Dear Lord, I don't think I can take any more of this. And then you think you hear him say, Dear child, this is just the beginning. Just the beginning. Wow. Wow. That he might do that among us. Wow. May he do it among us. Lord, sanctify us, we pray. We've given our lives, most of us in this room, 
today to worship and fellowship, to the ministry of your Spirit and your Word. We've called out to you together and individually, Lord, refresh me, encourage me, change me, transform me, make me like Jesus. And as we expose our lives to the influence of your Word throughout this week, we pray that your Word may be at work among us and in us in very special ways this week, that what we have heard from your word tonight may not just be the teaching of a moment, but the reality of every day. So hear us, Lord, as we cry to you and satisfy our deepest needs by the riches of your grace. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name.